You are now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Everybody, this is Nathan, your humble and obedient host. We've got Benjamin Solzer and Jacob Menzel, pastors both. But what's this? We have another pastor. Pastor Tim Bailey is calling in to join us today, a father in the faith to all of us, and our old pastor from Trinity Bloomington. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm old. <laughs> our ancient, <laughs> decrepit pastor. Our ancient, <laughs> decrepit into his dotage, Pastor. <laughs> uh, today, we are going to, I hope, cover about five or six topics related to sex or marriage, and we're just going to kind of go rapid fire here, cover a whole bunch of ground, just kind of uh, urgent questions that people have. And people should know Tim has a book about marriage that is basically done at this point. And I can't tell you exactly when it'll be out, but we hope to have it out very soon. Yeah, we hope to have it out by the end of 2021. Anything worth saying about that book, Tim? I'm going through it. Um, One of our elders, Josh Congrove and David Canfield did just superb work on it. So I'm taking it through a last read through. I'm, I think, halfway through chapter five, which means the first six chapters, depending on how we number the chapters. And I'm excited. Um, how would you describe I, the book? Um, I think, I think one of the problems people who are married today have is that marriage almost seems to be uh, a hopeless effort. It's much easier to sit at home and pleasure yourself and not have all the drama of a woman. And for a woman, it's much easier to put marriage off until you're 40. And then if you want to have children, you better get married then. But the more of your life you can accomplish without the drama of a man, the happier you are. <clears throat> but the fact is God made us, most of us, to be married. And love is beautiful. And love is hard. And so the book tries to get people to not be afraid and to reassure them that hard work doesn't mean they're going to fail, but rather that they're succeeding because it is hard work. And also starts out by talking about the importance of not allowing people on social media to lie to you and to envy them. So many people parade their virtues and their joys and their beauty and their taste, their aesthetics on social media. And after many years of my wife and I counseling people, we know that social media lies endlessly. And so one of the things we do at the very beginning is please realize that God's made you and your wife unique. Don't be intimidated by other people. Don't believe them when they tell you that they have a perfect marriage, their husband is a perfect husband. Just don't believe them. Do the work because love is worthwhile, and God blesses it. And uh, so that that gives you a feel for the thrust of the book, which is cookies on a low shelf. Don't let other people lie to you. Don't think you're a failure because it's hard. But 
over all of it is just the beauty of marriage. And that's how the book starts, is talking about how beautiful marriage is. Even when you count up all the costs and admit to the fights and cop to the selfishness and everything, it is absolutely beautiful. It really is beautiful. You know, it's not a book like marriage that you've ever read before because it's not hyper-spiritual and it doesn't have any to-do lists. Well, maybe in the section on fighting, it has some practical things. Mm -hmm. So, and the other thing is it does talk a lot about children and really argues for them because I'm convinced that happy marriages are marriages that love children and have been blessed by God with them. And couples that want children who do not have them are endlessly sad about that. And just that sadness points to the fact that children are a gift from the Lord. So we really try to hit that issue because, you know, nobody is wanting to bring children into the world today, given the condition of sexuality, of the law, of, you know, vaccines, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. it's not written to women and not men. It's not written to men and not women. My, my wife, Mary Lee helped me with it. And we were down, uh, at a place writing and she said, just say spouse. Cause I had said husband and wife. And I said, no, actually I am trying never to use a gender neutral term in this because all of us are always either husband or wife. Mm -hmm. There is no person in a marriage, <laughs> you know, and that's the, the joy and the horror of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, on the spirit or in the spirit of embracing the, the joy and the horror, let me ask you some, mm -hmm. some broad questions, uh, kind of, well, I don't know how broad they are, but questions about marriage and doing that hard work. And my first one is, what do I do if I came to faith late in life or came to spiritual maturity late in life and I am trying to salvage a marriage or and it's not something that I put the work into before, but now I'm trying to come back and recover what was lost. What, how do I begin to think about that? Okay. I was talking to a man in our church that has done a lot of large construction and he's done some construction for us. We're talking about, he would build 500,000 square foot refrigerated warehouses, precast concrete tip up. And so he built, he's built for us twice now and both times it's, it's tip up concrete precast. And when he got done both times, there were mistakes obvious in those huge concrete walls. The second time was a window that looked out on a concrete wall that was a foot away. And it's obvious that that was a boo-boo. And the first time they had to hire guys with humongous saws to come down from Indianapolis and cut out, you know, maybe 50 square feet of one of the precast walls. Cut it out. So anyway, I was talking to him recently about the mistakes, and I said, uh, are mistakes like this common in your work? And he said, look, he said, what a general contractor is, is a man who spends his life correcting mistakes. And he says, as a matter of fact, being a general contractor means backing yourself into a corner and then fighting your, your way out. 
So I think that second is a perfect definition of the marriage ceremony. You completely and utterly back yourself into a corner in front of witnesses and God, taking vows with lots of money spent, presents given. I mean, it is the maximum investment that anybody ever makes in life. And the reason is it's hard work. And so you better be backed into a corner so that you can't weasel out, right? Right. But then when it comes to trying to fight your way out, it's always dealing with sin. And so some people feel that because they had divorced parents that they're a special case and it's hopeless. So the first time they fight, they think, I'm going to get a divorce too. No, you're not. As a matter of fact, the fact that you fought is hopeful. Good. Because that means you're investing yourself in vulnerability. You're, 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 and I know you're going to sin, but it's good. It's good. But then other people think, well, because I didn't get, if I had only been a Christian when I chose my husband, mm-hmm. you know, if I had not committed the sin of adultery 10 years ago or one year ago, if I had been a Christian, I wouldn't have committed the sin of adultery. Wrong. Uh, King David was a lecher looking at another woman on another roof and then killed her husband. And so what is David going to say? Everything is hopeless from here on out. Read Psalm 51. That's not what he says. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And then I will teach others your ways. So that's my first response. Every marriage, whether it's between Christians or non-Christians, whether they were Christians before they got married or became Christians afterwards, whether the children are still in the home and teenagers (laughs) or uh, young children, or they've left the home every day is a new beginning in Jesus Christ. It's true for lifelong Christians. It's true for new Christians. We live by repentance, forgiveness. Our God forgives sins. So if you think you're some special case of horror, or that you married some special case of horror, or that you committed special horrible sins, the Bible is you. Have faith for your sin. You have blown it big time, and I hope you have a pastor who will tell you that, right? But God came, sent his son to save sinners. And so that's my basic, I'm, I'm really into this word right now called meta-narrative. That's my meta, <laughs> meta, and I say it with passion. <laughs> and I hope everybody feels it's robust, Mm-hmm. And that if they act on it, they will be flourishing. Mm-hmm. Very okay. winsome. Tash, thank you. Okay. Very uh, okay. Okay. Now listen. Now let me get specific. Last night, two of my grandchildren came over. They're headed off to college. Okay. And they came over. They're brothers. One's a year older than the other, but they're both going to college for the first time. And um, at the end of the time. I mean, it's a scary time. It's a sad and happy time. They're about to strike out on their own intellectually, career-wise, marriage, everything, having children of their own. Their period of probation is done, okay? At the end of the time, I said to them, hey, have you noticed how much better your father and mother are doing in their marriage? And the younger of the two just kept his deadpan face And the older of the two acted like he hadn't heard me. And my (laughs) wife gave me a look like I just 
committed some horrible, impolite thing in public. So why did I bring it up? Because I wanted these young men going off to college to hope in the grace of God for their sins. Mm. That's why I brought it up. And the fact is their father and mother had been having a hard time with a few things a couple years ago. And it's obvious how both of them have grown in the intervening two years. And can we not give thanks to God for this and recognize the work of his spirit? All right. So that's my uh, micro narrative. Mm -hmm. All right. But I have another one. And this is in the book. When Mary Lee and his mother and dad, who his, he was Ken Taylor, he started Tyndale House, he did the Living Bible, they published the New Living Translation, godly, godly man. He gave Jim Dobson, you might not remember him, but he gave Dobson his beginning. He, he has gone to be with the Lord now along with his wife. She lived to be 100, almost 101. When they were in their late 70s and early 80s, Mary Lee and I were visiting them in Wheaton, and we we realized that there was this you know what I'm saying? Do you recognize that? Nathan? I mean, nothing in my marriage has ever been characteristic of of, of that, so, so no. No, I don't recognize that. <laughs> Reminds me of back in my charismatic days when people would look at somebody who had just said something negative and they'd say, I don't receive that. (laughs) (laughs) I won't receive that that negative. So anyhow, by the way, did you notice that I took a picture of you and Meredith and put it at the top of my new series of articles? No. No. That's hilarious. What, the the state of our disunion? That one? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't you realize that you and Meredith? Well, let me see. Let me see. Uh, Maybe I didn't see the latest one. Oh, my goodness. Any idiot knows it's you and Meredith. Oh, you're right. I see. Oh, Oh, I just love that picture. Really flattering. It just, uh, people don't aren't uh, looking at it. There's this guy in a, a blue shirt who's about the size of Moby Dick, and then there's a, there's a beautiful woman across from him. So yep, yeah. <laughs> it's a painting. It's a painting. Uh, it's a painting. That. It's yeah. not a photograph. Yeah, but I mean, it does show the love of the two of them, and it shows the difficulty of their relationship. I think it shows it. So I loved that picture when I saw it, but it did mm-hmm. remind me of you guys. Uh-huh. So anyhow, mom and dad were going, nya, 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 nya. you know, just this slight undercurrent. And yeah. there was none of that ever in their home, almost to a fault. It was almost as if there was no sin, there was no fighting, there were no tempers. There was nothing but dispassionate reflection on the casuistry of perambulations across the universe. <laughs> You know, everything was like high and lifted up, right? <laughs> and so Mary Lee and I were driving home after the visit and we said to each other, you know, that that was like that was like not real nice. Not our visit was good, but we, we commented on the marriage. So we said, Let's pray for them. And we did. We prayed for them. About a year later we went up and visited them again. And there just wasn't that nasty sort of Nah, nah, nah. 
And by the way, when they were nasty, nah, 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 they were like, Ken, da-da-da-da. All right. You know, that's the way it came out. In other words, uh, very, very hidden, except if you were the family and then you knew what was going on, mm -hmm. that they were irritated with each other. So I said to dad, I did the great, uh, the great, um, what would you say? Unmentionable, the great sin of that Taylor home, which is I said to dad, dad, did you notice that you and mom are fighting less? Of course, nobody in that home would ever have copped to ever fight ever. They don't have fights. They're superior to fights. They don't bicker. They don't, you know. And so I broke all the rules by just saying, Dad, if you notice you and Mom are getting along better. And he says, I think he said probably something like, maybe he had a speech problem. And so he was asking me what I meant. And I said, well, about a year ago, we noticed that you were kind of at each other's throats in a very sort of <laughs> hidden way. And we've been praying and we have noticed that you're, you're doing a lot better. And he then said, yes, we are. Now, look, if a man who is universally respected as a paragon of godliness and his wife, who is also wonderfully godly, 10 children, wonderful woman, if they can, at that point in their life, demonstrate the need for God's power to heal them and can acknowledge it. And do I need to talk to Mary Lee and me? Look, you are not the sore thumb of the universe. You are normal. You are having problems. Don't cop out by saying you have special problems. Actually, your problems are absolutely normal. And yeah, there are unique circumstances and unique personalities that contribute to them. So often, I have talked to men or had conversations with them online who are so angry at women. And they go on and on about how awful women are today. And they think that they're the first generation that's ever had to deal with a, ho a toxic, hostile court system, child protective services, uh, lawyers, um, laws, uh, child support, um, churches that won't rebuke their wife, on and on and on and on and on. And I just listen to them and I think, Dude, it's just like the way it was when Mary Lee and I first got married. Do you think there was any church that was ever disciplining anybody then? So then these men will look at me and say, well, the church helps women today, but it doesn't help men. And my response is no, women have gotten really loud today. And because they're loud and obnoxious, uh, publicly on the internet, men who are pastors and elders will defer to them because they know if they don't, they're going to become a part of the Me Too story. But men and women are sinners. Men have always been married to sinful women. Women have always been married to sinful men. Men's sins are not categorically worse than women's sins. Women's sins do not render men impotent, incapable, and powerless, and victims in a way that past men didn't. I'm not saying that there aren't horrible men. I just came from court where a woman who spent her life caring for families that have terrible sexual sins in them. And I, well, I don't think I can tell this story. I don't think I can do it. But I mean, I talked to this woman afterwards and in court, in testimony, uh, 
in defense of a man, she said something that anybody that wants the meta-narrative today about sexual sin to be men and not women would have, would have, would have seen that they're foolish by this woman who has spent her life, and she's not a Christian. She is not even sympathetic. She's a classical liberal social worker. And so I want to say to you, Date, and Jake and Ben, that marriage is hard. Marriage is always between two sinners. That makes it hard. We live by faith. We live by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you just recently became a Christian or late in life, and you think you have all this uh, detritus or all this uh, baggage that is going to render you incapable of change, incapable of having a happy home, incapable of making love without images that are horrible coming up in your brain, you're wrong because God says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. And you're going to tell me that, you know, now you actually enjoy reading the Bible, but you can't enjoy sex? That all things new doesn't pertain to a marriage bed and sex because sex is dirty? Seriously? So I just want to encourage you to be a Christian. And being a Christian means asking for forgiveness of God, asking for forgiveness of your husband, admitting your rebellion against your husband. And then tomorrow you'll rebel again and you'll admit it again and again and again, because this is how God shows himself great and changes us and makes us holy. And it's painful. So someone listens to that and they think, okay, I want to have faith for it, but I have a mountain of work to do. Mm-hmm. which work do I start first? And Jake or Ben tap in when you want as well. Um, you know, uh, what thread do I pull on? What's, do I start with the small things? Do I start with the big things? Do I have to get the big things done before I can do this? You know, uh, how, how, okay. I'm, I'm with you, Tim. I, I, I do have faith in God, but I have work to do. And what's my, what's my game plan? The Bible's, constantly talks about sheep and shepherds, and that's the image it uses for the people of God. And our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, but our Lord Jesus said to Peter after his sin, feed my sheep. It is imperative, and there's a chapter on this in the new book, it's imperative that you find a church and have fellowship with other people and that you have a shepherd. You know, if all of a sudden you got uh you got really sick, you go to a doctor and submit yourself to him. And that doesn't mean that you're passive. doesn't mean that you don't read up on your disease. It doesn't mean that you don't talk to other people. But the plan for your healing is a doctor or a team of medical professionals. Think of pastors as neutral parties who have been appointed by God to encourage you and help you and to show you some basic plan of recovery, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, Because, look, if you have a lot of mess that you have to clean up after, you don't want to immediately fall into the situation of having fights with your husband or your wife over which mess to address first, and that's what's going to happen. 
if you have a history of power plays between the husband and the wife, which is typical of our marriages, we're, we're, the power play is constant. Get out of the power play by going to a pastor and trusting him, even if he decides in favor of our wife or our husband instead of us. You have to have help. This is what pastors are for. And it doesn't have to be your pastor. It can be an older woman in the church that you as a wife go and talk to, and you tell her what you don't like about how your husband's trying to improve the marriage. It could be an elder and his wife. It could be a couple, an older couple. When my brother and sister-in-law were in Milwaukee and involved in the charismatic movement, uh, they ran into a couple. He was an engineer with Briggs Stratton in Milwaukee. And what they did is they went over to, to that couple's house. That couple was probably 30 years older than they were. And they had a lot of problems. So they went over to the house and they just simply showed up at meals and just lived with them. I'm sure that the woman helped with the kitchen and they worked alongside each other. God, we see in the book of Acts, God has a central part of the curriculum of holiness be the church and from house to house. And so our houses are open because sometimes we need to catch the truth rather than hearing it. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, sometimes we have to see what a normal family is. I don't mind if Mary Lee and I, or I, if Mary Lee and I have a little bit of a tiff in front of couples in our home, I don't mind if our home has a, well, actually I do. I, I would lie if I said that. I was going to say, I don't mind if one of our bathrooms is dirty, but I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'm obsessive <laughs> on cleanliness, you know? Um, but I was going to say, I don't mind if I have to rebuke one of my children or my grandchildren when people are over, not because I want to parade my authority or the child's weakness, but that's how people calibrate to what is normal. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you do have a, a multifaceted problem. When I was a little boy, I spent tons and tons of time fishing. I was uh, much alone when my dad would speak out in Colorado at various adult camps. I would go out to the local creeks and lakes and fish for trout. And oftentimes I would cast and all of a sudden all the fishing line would get completely tangled, huge mass. And I learned from those things that there are times where if you look and just like get sort of vibe, vibe, fishing line vibes, you can pull on one loop and it will undo the whole mass. It's very rare. Sometimes it got so awful that you just cut the line at each side of the tangle and you start over. Okay. Don't be fixated on finding the right place to pull, the right technique, the right place to start, the right church to go to, the right pastor or elder and his wife to give you counseling. Don't get obsessive about how you solve your problems. If you're in a church and it's biblical and it has the fear of God, <laughs> good luck finding that one. Uh, but if you are in such a church, stay there and let them tell you what to do. That's what a shepherd does. You hear what we're saying is about the church. Again and again and again, we're talking about the church, pastors, we're talking about fellowship, we're talking about watching Christians. I said in my sermon this last Sunday, somebody gave me a copy of the local newspaper, I don't subscribe, had a big article by, well, never mind, but any of my 
my prior church here in town is now bragging about how they have people who feel both ways about abortion, people on both sides about homosexuality, and now they have women elders. Don't go to a church that has two positions on homosexuality, two positions on abortion, and has women exercising authority over men. You may not do that. Those are such foundational doctrines, commandments of Scripture that, no, you're not going to be helped by people in such a church. And second, there will be churches that have only the biblical side on homosexuality, on adultery, on abortion, on women exercising authority over men in office, okay, but don't want to love you or talk to you about your marriage, and you can tell you're a pain in the rear. Mm -hmm. You'll have to leave that church. You have to have help. But I'm talking about people that have actually a church that has a shepherd. He's sinful. You know, you may not like him, but the church is basically good. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think the most important thing is that you just start, you know, uh, you, you get bound up, like Tim said, you know, with the knots of uh, of the fishing line. Where, where do I start? Is there one thread that I can pull on that will untangle it all? If I pull on this, am I going to tighten things up? And the only way forward is to start and to put yourself in a position to be shepherded so you find the church. You go and you put yourself in the way of good shepherds that will love you and care for you. Invite yourself over to people's houses if your church doesn't have the kind of uh, community that you would like, where people are proactive in loving you and caring for you. And don't be afraid or ashamed of your mess. I was I was at a home last night um, in a mess, a very big one, and it was one of the sweetest, most encouraging things for me in the life of our church because you have this couple here, they're in a mess. Their family's in a mess. They're coming into our church in a mess, and they're not ashamed of their mess. They're just laying it all out for us. And man, how encouraging and sweet as a pastor, as a shepherd, to just have people who aren't afraid to admit that they're sinners. Because we all have messes. We're all coming from messes. And it's the humble ones uh, who are willing to own their mess that will grow in godliness and uh, will be changed and will be a strength and a joy to their shepherds. And so if you're in a church, even where you feel the pressure of, oh no, people will, man, find a church where your shepherds, some of that's just internal. Some of that's you. Some of that's just a lie. Good shepherds love to be with their sheep at the point of their pain, even when it's hard. Well, yeah, because we love to be it. The minute you started talking about that, I was just thinking, yeah, that is, pastors don't work for money much. And don't work for love much, but I'll tell you, money and love help. But what we really work for is repentance. That's right. I mean, that's the thing that's the payoff, you know, uh, because yeah. it's like, what is there more beautiful than a man and a woman who say, have mercy on me, Lord, for I am a sinner. And oh my goodness. Finally, all the self-promotion of social media just falls away, and we're back to the very beginning under the cross. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, uh, I've been uh, down here planting this church for a while, and I, I preach most of our Sundays, and it's my job to feed the sheep from the pulpit and to care for them. And so, how does a shepherd get fed? A shepherd, I think, is fed by the repentance of his people. Mm-hmm. That's 
that's what feeds my soul. That's what encourages me and strengthens me mm-hmm. and convicts me of my own sin and leads me back to the foot of the cross is seeing the humility of God's people walking in repentance. That's that's food for the shepherd's soul. And you can't undervalue <laughs> that. Well, and you can't deprive ahead. your shepherds of that. Let me let me say the negative corollary because I think it's worth saying how discouraging and draining and terrible and obnoxious and just like shoot me is it for a shepherd when people aren't being upfront when they're hiding things when they're nothing to see here everything's fine we're great there's nothing more draining than that we had a few couples that came into the church years ago who all of them had been taught that it was wrong to ever fight or argue in marriage and so quickly after they came in uh, if they heard us talking about something like, come on, do the hard work, argue with each other, disagree, they'd be like, I remember one guy, he was actually a pastor, listening to me talk and exhorting couples to have an argument, to disagree. I don't want to say he was new to the faith, but almost. Anyhow, he said to me, but Tim, what does it mean in First Peter where it says that, you know, a gentle and quiet spirit, you know, how can you have... Uh, how can you say to people that they should have arguments with their husband and talk to their husband about his sin if it says that wives are to be submissive and that they're supposed to commend themselves to God with a gentle and quiet spirit? And I remember being shocked that he asked me that question. Because, and I don't know what I said to him, but since then I've heard quite a few couples, people say that you know, they don't fight. We've never had an argument. You know, you have couples that say that. And typically, my wife knows the wife. And I hear third hand about the tensions of their marriage. But publicly, they're clean, you know. And I, I try to say to people, if God gave you a woman to be your helper and friend, how on earth would you want her not to raise up with you the areas you're failing and not to talk to you about sin and not to question your judgments? I mean, I've never known a man that has another male friend that doesn't want that from his male friend, although there are narcissists who are so weak that they couldn't handle it. But any men I know, they want a man. As a matter of fact, I tell people that a lot of my best friends came from fighting. You know, you have a knockdown drag out at some time, playing basketball, whatever it is. And from then on, you're best buds. And it be, it's because you take each other's measure, you realize you're willing to punch each other to wrestle or to argue. And so... Yeah, I think it's so important that we not allow the world to press us into its mold, which the world has this conceit that it's always nice and it never hurts anybody and it's tolerant and it's pluralistic and it's diverse and everybody's a snowflake and we all give each other space and we're always kind. And there's nobody nastier, ruder, more unloving, more aggressive, more moralistic than a liberal. It's Christians that understand sin. It's Christians 
that it, we may get mad at somebody else's sin, but we're also quick to forgive. It's Christians that are forget that are quick to ask for forgiveness. And why? Well, here's an idea, because we are the only ones that worship the only true God who forgives sin. Mm-hmm. No liberal God has ever forgiven a sin. You made a bad choice, and we need to teach you to make better choices. That's the closest to mercy a liberal ever gets. Well, I want to I wanna go to another topic, but does anybody have any more thoughts on this before I do? Can I raise one? Listening to us and knowing about couples that have real problems, I can imagine somebody saying, yeah, that's all well and good, but my wife or but my husband is going along for the ride. He's showing up at church, but I really don't think he's even a Christian. Hmm. And if I press this thing, he won't keep coming. And so the way I keep him coming is I act like he's a Christian and I try to be the one that makes all the apologies and I try to be quick to forgive. And if it's the woman, I try to submit to him. And if it's the man, I try to love her. But you don't know how awful my situation is. So what would you guys say to that? I'd call Tim and say, Tim, I have this situation in my church. (laughs) What should I say? Well, let's be honest here, and let's say that for how many years we were in the same church? Yeah. How many? Like 15, I think. And that Nathan and I grew up together, (laughs) and that even Ben has been among us for how long now? Mm, Seven. Seven years. years. And so... All three of you guys know that we have gone through this situation together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so actually, you wouldn't call me up to ask me what to say. You'd call me up to encourage you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So now tell them what you'd say. (laughs) 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 Because I don't have any hesitation that the three of you, all of you, would say the right thing. You'd say different things, but what would you say to people listening who despair because of the lack of spiritual commitment of a husband or wife? I would start with, well, it would depend on the person, but what popped into my head when you asked the question was Matthew 10, actually. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, but I have come to bring, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I think Luke actually, I think it's Luke. Mm-hmm. who has uh, adds husband and wife. Mm-hmm. I had a situation in our church. Oh, man, I'm remembering who it was. <laughs> Where a woman who was godly was being accused of being unbiblical and unchristian because she had finally, after many, many years, her husband had separated from her. And after many, many years, they finally were divorced. And I remember that there were several cases in the church at that time where the husband, now 
I'm sorry, but in this case, it was the husband. More recently in our church, it has been the wife, okay? And so we're equal opportunity employers in terms of encouraging spouses to obey the command the two of you just read. So one Sunday, trying to protect this woman from false accusations from people, she was suffering and she was tender of conscience. She was easily prepared to believe the worst about herself when people would tell her. I remember saying in the pulpit, listen, some of you need to realize that you have not been unfaithful to your marriage vows, but that your spouse has turned and opposed God. And the consequences of that are that your marriage came to an end. And I want to say to you, God bless you for choosing God over your spouse. Because, and then I read the passage, Nathan, Mm -hmm. that you just read. So yes, Nathan, that is the first note that must be struck. And rarely will a pastor strike that note. Because we want to heal falsely. We want to to take an easier way. We don't want to face the scandal of the sword of Jesus Christ. And yet we see that sword cutting through constantly in families, constantly in marriages, you know? And we realize that the Bible is a sword that separates between joint and marrow. And Mm -hmm. what better description of husband and wife than joint and marrow? Mm-hmm. Or bone and marrow? Bone and marrow. And so, Nathan, that is absolutely the first thing. And it shouldn't be done in a way that condemns the spouse that is not talking to you. It's very easy for you to take the side of the spouse that's talking to you. That's why we have a principle we won't counsel spouses with only one and not the other. But sometimes the other is a woman who's committing adultery and a man who's looking at pornography. And they refuse to repent, and it goes on for a long time with much pastoral care. And then it is true that sometimes the thing that honors God is, in fact, divorce. And I could give you the circumstances, those of you who are listening, never does a pastor make that decision. It's made by the entire board of elders. Usually there's over 20 men in the room when we discuss these issues. But coming back, um, I wanted to ask that question because I do believe that people listening to us would think that we're being Pollyannish, dishonest about the difficulty of marriages. And I don't want them to feel like we're saying any of this stuff cheaply. Mm -hmm. If we could tell you the sins that are committed between couples and in the home, in the families of our church. But that does not mean that you pursue divorce. Right. Yeah. That does not mean. In fact, when I was thinking about what we were going to be talking about, what I wanted to say is the very first step, Christian marriage of any marriage is till death. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that commitment before God, knowing that's what God decreed marriage to be from the very beginning, you don't have a prayer. Well, I like to tell the story of you preaching that at my wedding and and me and Meredith both being like, what 
the heck? Why did he preach that grumpy sermon about how we're not supposed to get divorced? Like, didn't he have anything uh, more uplifting, more uplifting, more spirit? You know, well, yeah, of course, we're not going to get divorced. Like, come on. Like, why did he think that was the, the one thing that we needed to be? Because that was it was, uh, you know, that was the really the only thing that he said. Uh, and, <laughs> and you were very serious about it. Um, and then it wasn't a month into our marriage that we were like, oh, thank goodness that he preached that divorce thing. That was the only thing that we, we needed. <laughs> if we didn't have that <laughs> fixed in our minds, I don't if that wasn't our North Star, I don't know what we would do. And I am not exaggerating. It was that quick and it was that extreme the the difference between our (laughs) our our two takes on it and it was both of us yeah and i wasn't saying it because i thought you two would have a hard marriage i said it well i said it because of your family backgrounds yeah we both come from divorce well but not just divorce and nasty yeah yeah and so i wanted you both to know the permanence of marriage to have that proclaimed and you know you have to remember that pastors what we do is we just say things that people know over Mm -hmm. and over again god has called us to do that thank you for listening to sound of sanity please go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity to support this program as well as the chip and lance show the ville and our other creative endeavors patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity you'll get additional little episodes sanity bites we call them as well as other fun behind the scenes looks videos and occasional goodies that's once again that's patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity and until next time stay sane